0: Hi, my name is Amar. I'm a senior econ student at Case Western. Hi, everyone. My name is Zach, and I'm a first-year medical student at the CUNY School of Medicine. And welcome to the MSX Podcast, a show about a broad range of topics in medicine, from education to exploring research and contemplating future directions for the field. In each episode, we speak with leaders in the field to learn from their insight and expertise. In this week's episode, we're speaking with Dr. Raymond Robinson, a medical student advisor at the CUNY School of Medicine in New York City, As well as a professor of health informatics at Northwestern University. Dr. Robinson is also the founder and CEO of the Regenerative Education Evolution Lab, where he and his team are passionate about evolving education by embedding the science of learning into technology. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Robinson.
1: Great to be here.
0: Yeah, so before recording, we briefly spoke about your path into medicine, and you described it as a pretty non traditional path. For some of the curious listeners, would you be able to describe some of that path?
1: Yeah, I'd love to. So a very circuitous path for me to actually get to medicine. I started off quite early um, struggling. I grew up in uh, Compton and Inglewood, and gangs were kind of an everyday thing. I never was jumped in. I was never a part of one, but um, gang violence was everywhere. Um, Obviously, this was back in the days when everybody wore blue or red, and they were either a a Crip or a Blood or a Notenio or a Soreño in Southern California. And, um, you just kind of go through experiencing, um, some racial discord, some, uh, bullying, um, not really fitting in with the crowd and, uh, some overflow from, from gang violence. That was just kind of a, a, a daily occurrence, uh, where I grew up and, you know, um, I was one of two white students in my entire elementary school. A guy that lived with me um, or lived in the same housing project that I lived in was white, I was white. Out of that, there were no other white people in the entire school. And um, there was, it was a very different atmosphere, let's say, than um, what maybe some of my classmates have gone through. When I was in, when I was in medical school at least. So for me, I uh, I, I didn't excel in, in school. That was not ever a place where things were comfortable. I ended up in um, in junior college, or I mean uh, a junior high school. And I had a lot of difficulty in junior high school, so I I did not know this until I was about 30 years old. But I I had severe dyslexia, and I stood out in 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 class um, because I I just saw things differently and I didn't learn the same as everybody else. And that often took me to a place where I would get picked on because I just couldn't keep up like everybody else could. Um, I couldn't read the same as everybody else and I remember in English class uh, we had this teacher named Miss Kawada and she would ask us to kind of stand up in in front of class and read a paragraph out of the book or you know um, go write something on the board and that was not a place that was very comfortable for me because I would then obviously, get embarrassed, make people laugh. And so I ended up becoming kind of the class clown. Um, And that ended up turning into often getting sent to the dean's office, um, staying after for getting in trouble, having to come in on the weekends and picking up paper, um, all different kinds of after-school activities that were not really your positive scholarly or uh, sports-related kind of activities. And, um, uh, that carried on through all of seventh grade and then into eighth grade, um, my, uh, my father got really sick. Um, he ended up having colon cancer. And, um, from, from that point, school took a major downturn. I basically, um, left school in eighth grade. Um, they they Judiciously, just kind of pushed me through and allowed me to graduate and move on to high school Uh, but I only went to about two weeks of high school and from there I ended up uh, dropping out. My father went in and out of the hospital with cancer and basically ended up uh, living in our in our living room and while he was going through chemotherapy and chemotherapy back in those days was was rough it was it was not kind of dialed in very well it was not as uh specific it was more general the chemotherapy that they were using and they used to put you in these very large kind of radiological oven type situations where they would try to get the um the chemotherapy to to target the the tumors and uh, so i, I I would sit and watch a lot of that of his history and and him being really sick and him basically dying. Um, Very large man, six foot four, 240 pounds, whittled down to about 165 pounds. And and it, it just became devastating. It became really difficult to watch. And so I ended up dropping out of school in the second week of high school. And starting to uh, go down a path that was not um, conducive for um, trying to to be um, a productive member of society, let's say. So anyway, I picked up I picked up a lot of drugs, I picked up a lot of alcohol. and I ended up becoming uh, an IV drug user by the time I was 16 years old. Uh, I was in juvenile hall by the time I was 15. And uh, my mom crawled into a bottle of alcohol. Um, and all of this was to try to deal with just the pain of what was going on around us and not having one another to be able to, re- to, to reconnect with and, and to lean on. And um, by the time I was about 15 years old. I was, or even before that, I was on the streets when I was about 14. Um, I would be able to come home, but, um, you know, it didn't, it didn't, I didn't stay there long because we didn't get along. There was a lot of pain. there was a lot of drama going on. And so I would always find solace in going back out and living on the streets. And then obviously I graduated going to go into juvenile hall and I spent a couple of years in juvenile hall. And when I was done finally uh, with juvenile hall and going to placements, and I was spent like two and a half years in placement to about two years in juvenile hall, that kind of thing, I ended up finally... um, on the streets for real this time. Mom decided that she was gonna move. She tried to take me with her, but I wasn't ready. And so she moved to Northern California. I stayed in Southern California and now I was literally on the streets. And I ended up basically at about 18 years old. I had been living in a cardboard condo, as they call it, um, down on Pico and Alvarado in East Hollywood for about two years. And um, I was really just sick and tired of being sick and tired. Um, somebody took me in off the streets, and um, I ended up, I ended up getting clean. Um, I'm an active member of some twelve-step fellowships and very hardcore into that life. And um, that started a road and an opportunity for me to go to school. And at 18 years old, no high school education, no high school diploma. Um, I ended up taking the GED, and obviously you can see how, um, how well the GED does. I mean, uh, if you can pass it with basically a seventh grade education, that's not really saying a whole lot. But it was enough for me to, to move on and get into a community college. And that's where my academic career took off. Any other questions up to this point? Or?
0: Yeah. So careers in medicine often feed from like from really similar places, right? Medical families, students that have that four-year traditional education, uh, they're financially well off. When did you, when did you find medicine? During your father's diagnosis with cancer? During community
1: college? Yeah, good point. So none of that (laughs) is the short answer. So for me, um, I didn't believe I could be a physician. I didn't know what it took to become a physician. Um, Nobody in my family was in the medical field. Um, My mom barely graduated high school. My dad ended up going to um, uh, undergrad. He went to Penn State and graduated in aeronautical engineering. And he had a decent job. Um, But I had no idea what I wanted to do. What, What I ended up doing was going to community college for a while and um i spent about 10 years counseling so i basically went from being a drug addict and and um, uh, getting clean to then trying to save the world right so it's kind of like this this kind of funny idiom that happens in recovery is that you get better you change your life and now you want to save the world. And, and that's kind of what I did. And so for about 10 years, I spent uh, in the field of, of counseling and trying to help people. And I really loved, fell in love with, with trying to work with people and trying to help people. And my most of my experience was building um, drug and alcohol programs in low-income counties around California um, for high school students. and. Um, From there, I basically had done just about everything I could do after about 10 years of being in the field without having a college degree. Um, And so I decided I was I kind of went in and out of community college back and forth for about, you know, four years, five years out of that 10 years. And then I finally committed. I went back and I started taking my very first um, pre-algebra class because I had never had algebra I had never had kind of upper level English. I had never had um, geometry, never had any of those kinds of courses, never had a science course, never had biology, chemistry, physics, none of that. Um, And so I I went back and I started at the very bottom at community college when I was probably around 26, 27, and um, one class at a time. I started to learn that I had the tenacity, the drive to override um, what I thought was the intelligence. Um, Because I thought, I always thought academia was about intelligence. I thought it was about the people that were gifted, the people that were smart, the people that had the ability to, to have access and exposure and, Um, parents that had, you know, people that were genetically predisposed to become smart and maybe make it in academia. And I slowly started to have a belief in myself that grit and tenacity can override intelligence. And one class at a time, um, I proved that to be true. Um, And so I went through this last round of community college and worked my way up to having to take calculus for a year, um, doing Gen Chem, doing O Chem, doing all the prereqs that I needed to take in order for me to transfer to a four-year university. And I did that with a a 4.0 GPA. Um, But I think what really... made the difference was I had two professors at the community college that changed my entire life. They saw that I had the capacity, but that I was working within a system that was not working for somebody who thought like I did, who, who processed information like I did. So they automatically would just give me extra time to take the exam in a separate room with a proctor that would watch me And I would excel in these science classes. And then they did things like they taught differently. So so, um, uh, Mark Blazer and, and Morgan Hannaford, Morgan taught biology and Mark taught Gen Chem. They would bring the world outside into their classroom and make it come alive. And I had never had teaching like this. This did not make sense to me. Because it was so foreign from what I had experienced, they they did not just they didn't lecture. They they made the classroom real, real reality happened. It was situated, authentic learning in a real world environment in the classroom. Um, you know, for instance, gen chem things would blow up, and then they, we would talk about the molecules, and we would process all of that, and we would have. All these different kinds of models that we would be using inside there and how these things would collide and how that would work. And then in biology, we would have these labs that we run our own DNA in a PCR machine, which was like unheard of in a community college at, back at that time. And um because of them, I got addicted to school. They allowed me to believe enough in myself that um. I could maybe become a physician, that I could do this science thing, that that I didn't have, that this, this thing called dyslexia was not a limiting factor. And, and um, they even, you know, one winter, there was a group of us that, that teamed up together and we're all in the same classes together and we all like hoarded together and, and really committed to doing the science thing. And uh, we became really, really tight friends. One of them even became my, um, my roommate um, in undergrad. And um, we all went to Tahiti. So, Morgan Hannaford he had come from UC Berkeley, and UC Berkeley has a research station on the island of Morea called the, the Gump Station. And they do some really amazing marine research there. It's an unbelievable, like picturesque perfect place on this beautiful island of Marea. And in the off season, nobody's there because everybody's at home in the holidays. Well, he made a commitment with UC Berkeley to allow us to go there. And we did, we spent, I think it was two weeks, like 15 days down in Tahiti in the island of Marea. And we studied how atolls had formed and, you know, all the things that, that, that revolve around evolution, and we did many research projects. And um, that was the kind of commitment of teaching that I had just never experienced or had before, which opened the doors to the world of belief that I could maybe go to medical school. You
0: recognize that you found this you know, inquisitive nature, like after all this time that, you know, you became addicted, you know, to learning, to school. I was wondering how much of that was present, you know, as, you know, you're someone who's a part of a couple startups, you know, how did that first startup form and what was the context behind that?
1: Yeah. So the first startup that I worked at, I was um, basically at Hopkins um, and I was looking at transitioning either into residency or leaving the field altogether. So I was getting ready for match. Um, I had submitted, you know, or, or populated ERAS and, and getting all those fun things that you're going to be doing, you know, the noteworthies, the CV, the, all of that fun stuff. And I was, I had it all in there. Um, my board scores, and, um, I was looking at trying to to match in anesthesiology. And my real focus was on anesthesia, critical care medicine it ultimately is where I wanted to go. So I do a fellowship in critical care. And the reason why is because I did a lot of research with, um, some pretty prominent folks at Hopkins in patient safety and quality improvement, Dr. Peter Pronovost and Sean Baronholtz and that whole group at the Armstrong quality and safety research, uh, group. And, um, and so I was in love. I was in love with critical care, and that's what I really wanted to go into. But um, I got this really interesting opportunity, and I had also gone and done a master's in public health at Bloomberg School of Public Health. And so um, I had uh, pretty good skills with being able to do my own research projects, being able to run my own analysis, run my own data set, understand how to choose the right. Um, uh, uh, statistical analyses to be able to do the right analysis now, because I had gone and done this in PH. And um, I had been approached to um, go and be a part of this telemedicine company. And um, that telemedicine company focused on ICU telemedicine. And at that time, it was, it was fairly new, but it was growing. It was starting to bloom. It was really starting to take off. And um, uh, it was focused on moving away from just telemedicine to now looking at distributing telemedicine across the entire healthcare continuum in these very large um, uh, healthcare systems. And um, what I know about working in those fields is that um, in academia, they're looking for oftentimes very uh, a certain kind of thinker, um, people that behave and talk and act in very specific ways. and um, I tend to be an oddball in that situation because of the way that I view things. I don't know if it's just because of dyslexia or it's just because of who I am and how I grew up I don't I have no idea but, Um, I don't often conform well to the academic environment, and the startup community is a place where I flourish, because I do think quite differently. I'm looking at systems kind of processes and how to fix systems as a whole, and in a startup community, you move fast basically, if you're second, you're probably going out of business, right? So the mentality is you got to move fast, you got to move quick. And, um, and you don't allow it's not, um, there's not a lot of barriers that are in the that that can be in the way. Um, in the in academia, what I always saw was that there were always um, challenges and barriers. And very siloed processes in trying to get things to move for instance if you want to change something often at a medical school or at a university you often have to go through multiple committees and you have to get approval and you often have to deal with a culture where people are a little re- resentful if it's not their idea because then they don't look as you know like as prominent or as as important, or or whatever it is, but but it's harder to to excel in those kinds of uh, environments because it's often quite political, and in the startup environment, um, a lot of those silos and those committees are non-existent because you're dealing oftentimes with a very flat structure, and you're just trying to chaotically get this thing to move forward, and. I thrive in that environment because of the way that I think and the way that I see um, projects and and progress. Um, and I just found that I found a great fit. I ground. I found a, a place where where I could um, be an oddball <laughs> and and still do a lot of the things that I really love to do, and not have as many challenging. Um, barriers to get over because there is that flat structure. There are there are more opportunities for me to be able to kind of flourish in that environment. And so it, it was it was a big decision for me to to leave clinical medicine and and go out into industry. Um, but it's one that paid off. Um, I found myself being able to kind of leave the, the, the first startup that I was at and being comfortable enough, to be able to um kind of leave the US and I I went back to what I really um was interested in which was the teaching aspect of medicine. Um so I I left and I went down to a Caribbean island and I also wanted some sunshine at the same time but um so I went down and I started teaching at one of the Caribbean uh medical schools there and um there was a couple reasons for that too because I probably shouldn't have got into medical school, at least not where I went to medical school, um, because I had a very low, very low MCAT. Um, Probably I still have the lowest MCAT score ever at my medical school, I believe, to this day. So that's a huge win in my corner. Um, And so I. I truly believe in the underdog. And oftentimes these Caribbean medical students are U.S. citizens that either didn't have a good MCAT score, had it rough in 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 undergrad, had some other kind of thing going on or maybe they were um, they're struggling enough that they might not make it through medical school there's all those different right there's the whole gamut of runs in down there but I believe everybody should be given a shot right and that MCAT that MCAT is just such a limiting factor and it's a major limiting factor for the underrepresented minority population, because oftentimes the minority population in the U S don't have the same access as, as the white folks or the people that are privileged, let's say. Um, and so they often, you know, the research shows that the MCAT scores in minority populations is, is, is lower. And so they don't matriculate. And if your your incoming assessment scores are based on the MCAT score, then you're not going to be bringing in as many minority students, right? And so one of the opportunities I was able to do going down there was the minority population is, it's like 80% of the population in those schools down there versus 80% Non-minority population in most U.S. medical schools, except for the traditionally African American schools like Morehouse and you know those schools, um, or the CUNY School of Medicine, and so it was exciting as well as as um, a learning curve for me, because along with lower MCAT scores, along with that fantastic minority. Um, population that comes with those schools, the diversity of people also comes with the diversity of academic um, levels. Um, They they also come with with English as a second language challenges. They come with, um, they're either migrants or first generation or English is not their second, their first language, or they have challenges that I never had to go through. And you know, I'm mostly used to teaching students that are in U.S. LCME-approved medical schools and had the MCAT, have English as their first language, are not necessarily migrants or or first gen. And so, I found myself realizing that. I wasn't qualified to teach these students that I am went to, yeah, I went to medical school and yeah, I've been teaching various things in medicine for about 10 years, 15 years, but that, that doesn't make me an educator, that that is not my definition of what an educator is that I never went to a school of education. I don't know the academic literature around what the best, learning processes are, what the best teaching techniques are, how does memory work. I don't know that in academic literature. I mean, I, I could maybe, you know, tell you the academic literature on central line bloodstream infections and, you know, um, glucose monitoring in the ICU and and antibiotic, prophylactic antibiotic before surgery and and, you know, all that kind of stuff around around critical care and, and things like that. But I, I could not tell you at all the literature on what is the best technique to use in a student who has a challenge with certain kinds of um, uh, memory or certain kinds of uh, learning theory or anything else. Um, and so this really challenged me to, do something different. And so I decided to go back to school and I'm a fourth year doctoral student now in the School of Education at Hopkins. And, um, and now I do know the literature. And now I believe that I am becoming more of an educator. Uh, before I used to see myself as a subject matter expert. Um, and I truly believe that the majority of physicians um, that teach in medical schools are subject matter experts. That the majority of them did not go to a school of education. Yeah, now it's starting to change, right? And people are going to get a master's at Harvard or um, University of Illinois or or Hopkins or any of these other places. But I also believe those master's degrees are not the same as going to a school of education. I, th- I believe that they are different. They're they're better, but I still don't believe. They're studying the literature, the academic literature, and the way that it needs to be studied to create a, a true educator. You know, my my definition has changed over the years, but it's starting to form into this idea that that just as physicians are there to make a, a, a diagnosis on a patient that is evidence-based, then they use that s- same type of literature, that same kind of process to build an intervention to help that diagnosis that they just made, I believe that as an educator, I should be able to diagnose a group full of students using the evidence-based in education, and then be able to build an intervention using the evidence-based um, education literature. And, and if I can't do that, then I, I don't necessarily believe that that I'm at the level of being an educator that, um, that I think what we need in our medical schools. And the culture, the environment, right now, it's just that way. Uh, The physicians often don't go to a school of education, and neither do the the people who have PhDs. Right? They they go to a graduate school. They didn't go to a school of education. Now there are some who do. Um, I I'm not trying to knock them. I'm just saying the majority of basic science researchers um, don't have a PhD in education and know the education literature. Um that's far fewer than 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 um, than uh, what we see in our in our medical schools.
0: If the best learning happens by like finding problems with within students' learnings and and diagnosing these problems with uh, interventions, why do you think Khan academy, udemy, Coursera, et cetera, like all of those platforms work
1: yeah, so um. Do they work or are they popular?
0: Thanks for listening to the MSX podcast. This has been part one with Dr. Robinson. Catch part two in the next episode.